to the clinical podcast series brought to you by the American Academy of Optometry's Foundation. Today's episode is brought to you by the Public Health Channel, Changing Trends in the Corneal Transplantation and the Impact of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Corneal Transplant Recipient Selection. I'd like to thank our host, Dr. Ruth Hyatt. She's also our topical editor for this episode and our topical expert, Dr. Muriel Shornack. And now it's my pleasure to begin today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the clinical podcast series. I'm Ruth Hyatt, a fellow and diplomate of the Academy. This episode will explore the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on keratoplasty. Our topical expert is Dr. Shornack, a fellow of the Academy. Hey, good morning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, absolutely. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for asking me. I graduated from the Illinois College of Optometry in 1998, finished a residency in 1999, and arrived at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota immediately upon completion of my residency. I've been there ever since, and um, I'm delighted to be part of this program. Well, welcome. So let's have a look at the paper. Changing Trends in Corneal Transplantation and the Impact of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Corneal Transplant Recipient Selection was published in July 2022 by Tenildes and colleagues. So let's just start off the bat by discussing what the study adds to the body of literature already known about corneal transplantation. Yeah, so I did a quick PubMed search uh, using the terms corneal transplantation and indications, and that search pulled up nearly 1,200 papers on the topic, including some similar studies from other regions of the world. Now, why would we want all of those studies? Well, there are certainly differences in patient characteristics, such as age or gender or indications, and the type of surgery uh, that has been reported in, from one region of the world to another. So what are some of the causes of those differences? Well, number one, there are different availabilities of corneal tissue, depending upon the region of the country that, or the region of the world that you live in. Um, in the United States, availability of tissue is usually not a bottleneck or limiting factor, but in some regions of the world it is. Training of surgeons also makes a difference. If your surgeons were all trained 30 to 40 years ago, they may be using older techniques. Uh, whereas if you've got a younger cadre of surgeons, you may actually be more likely to get a um, more recently developed procedure. Then there are access to alternative treatments. In some areas of the world, scleral lenses or cross-linking might be more available than in other regions. And then there's just overall access to healthcare. Uh, so that's the, the reason for some of these differences and the reason that getting publications from different regions in the in the world is is important and helpful. You can even get differences within a single region. Uh, Go et al. in 2020 published a paper entitled Application of Data Mining Algorithms to Study Data Trends for Corneal Transplantation. They took a look at corneal transplantation in Florida, very localized area, and discovered that even in that small area, over a relatively short period of time, I believe it was six or seven years, they found that more females than males had endothelial keratoplasty. Black patients were more likely to undergo penetrating keratoplasty compared to one of the lamellar procedures. And differences even existed in techniques 
uh, according to the type of insurance that patients had. So uh, I think that all of these reasons are good reasons to explore differences and trends in different parts of the world. I think that the most interesting aspect of this study is its emphasis on changes in transplantation rates and indications during the COVID pandemic. So that's a good point. And so differences in patient age and indication for keratoplasty were noted between period one, which was 2006 to 2012 in this study, and period two, which was 2013 to March of 2020. Do you, uh, can you comment on potential reasons for the differences? Yeah, things changed. Um, I always have to bring square lenses into the conversation no matter when I speak to people, <laughs> and I am going to do so now. In 2006, when I started presenting on square lenses, people used to look at me like I had three heads. Uh, it was just not part of the mainstream conversation, even though rigid gas permeable square lenses had been reported as early as 1983. Um, but really in the 2000 teens era, sclera lens use really took off. So it would make sense that in a time period prior to the widespread adoption of sclera lenses, we were doing transplants on a lot of patients who may have simply not been able to achieve adequate visual acuity with corneal rigid lenses or may not have been able to wear corneal rigid lenses, but were able to wear sclera lenses. If you've got a clear cornea and you can get uh, functional vision with a sclera lens, then you don't need to do uh, penetrating keratoplasty. Also, there, um, so cross-linking has probably also made a difference in the rate of corneal transplantation. With the advent of this procedure, there's been more impetus to find ways to diagnose keratoconus early and to uh, intervene in ways that would help to stabilize the cornea. So I think both scleral lenses and cross-linking probably made a difference uh, there. If you think about the age range for patients who may undergo keratoplasty for keratoconus, they're generally gonna be a little bit younger. Uh, the older population uh, would be more likely to need transplantation because of conditions such as Fuchs uh, dystrophy or corneal scarring, that sort of thing. So the increase in the number of keratoplasties that were lamellar in nature in that second time period could be due to the fact that you didn't have to do as many keratoplasties for keratoconus, and you ended up doing more for endothelial keratoplasty or endothelial dystrophies. The development of endothelial keratoplasty procedures allowed for more patients to avail themselves of that procedure earlier in the disease process. So differences in type of surgery were also reported between the three time periods. So again, period one is 2006 to 2012, period two was 2013 to March of 2020, and then period three, which they called the COVID period, was April 2020 till March of 2021. Uh, what are your thoughts on changes between those three periods? So the adoption of new techniques generally needs to reach a bit of a tipping point before it reaches widespread market penetration. If you think about 
people who might have trained 20 to 30 years ago, endothelial keratoplasty or lamellar keratoplasty really wasn't part of their training. So they've had to pick this up later. People who are younger coming into the field have that as part of their normal surgical repertoire. So it makes sense that as older people retire and these younger uh, practitioners who have been trained to use these procedures come into the healthcare system, that you're going to see a shift in the percentage of procedures uh, that are lamellar or penetrating in nature. So I did find a couple of papers describing lamellar keratoplasty as early as 1950, but man, they didn't have femtosecond lasers back then. So the surgical instrumentation didn't exactly support that. It was probably much easier to do a full thickness button transplant than to try to tease out uh, lamellar keratoplasty um, before surgical instrumentation and techniques were developed that allowed people to do that a little bit more easily. So lamellar techniques really started showing up in the literature in the early 2000s. Um, I would make the same point here that I made for scleral lens wear or scleral lens prescription. Scleral lens has been around since the late 1800s if we uh, include those blown glass shells that Fick and Mueller and um, Kalt described in the literature, but it took until the early 2000s for them to really take off. And I think we may be seeing uh, a similar change in the rate of adoption of some of these lamellar techniques. I know in our practice, our surgeons are doing a lamellar technique if they possibly can and reserving penetrating keratoplasty only for those eyes that they absolutely need to do this in. So I would expect that over the course of the next 15 to 20 years, we're going to see even more dramatic increases in the utilization of these lamellar techniques. And it makes sense. They are um, less likely to reject. They are quicker recovery. And in general, patients have really good visual results. Um, a number of patients, of my patients who wear scleral lenses have had endothelial keratoplasty, and they're doing fine 15 and 20 years out. This is one of the first studies to look at the impact of COVID-19 on ocular surgery. Did any of the information presented particularly catch your attention? So my first thought was, well, of course, the rate of transplantation went down because surgical centers were largely closed except for emergency cases. And, you know, let's face it, keratoconus isn't exactly an emergency indication. There's nothing that says you can't wait a year. It might not be pleasant, but if uh, if a surgical center is shut down, they are going to focus on those cases um, where someone might be experiencing graft rejection or where someone might be experiencing severe pain due to bullous keratopathy. And that's exactly the, the cases that were prominent during the COVID period. But I also hadn't considered the impact of COVID on tissue availability. Uh, if the virus is in fact present in tear and conjunctival surfaces, then we're going to need to institute some pretty strict screening protocols in order to limit the risk of transmission through uh, tissue transplantation. So it'll be interesting to see if we have kind of a catch-up period. Uh, once things started opening up, did you have kind of a bolus of uh, individuals with non-urgent uh, visual needs coming through for keratoplasty? And so that would be an interesting thing to look at going forward. 
Uh, it might also be interesting to look at the survival rates of grafts in patients who received transplants during the pandemic. Theoretically, uh, these patients had more severe disease and there's also the potential for contaminated tissue or complications due to COVID uh, that might impact uh, graft survival in those patients. So just a couple of ideas for studies going forward. Yeah, so tissue donor considerations was something that I also found interesting in this article. Muriel, thank you for your insight. I appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Clinical Podcast Series. And a special thanks to CooperVision for their educational grant to make it all happen.